Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 10 on the War of the Jewels. And uh, tonight we should get towards the end of the Quenta. At the very least, we are coming to the part of the Quenta Silmarillion. This is the part of the Quenta Silmarillion where Tolkien tends to stop writing the Quenta Silmarillion. Um, indeed, we are coming, approaching the place where Tolkien has always stopped. It's become tradition for Tolkien to stop writing the Quenta Silmarillion at this point. Um, and indeed, he never continued it beyond uh, the story of Turin. Um, so I think, well, see, that's interesting, Tarlonio. It may be writer's block or something, like he could never get past this part. Um, it seems to me likely to be something different from that. But we'll get there, and we'll look at some of Christopher's own analysis of this, which is really fun and interesting. And if we get all the way to the end of my slides, we will come to the place where I realized I like rediscovered something in this text that I had forgotten was there completely, and realized I've been like saying like saying wrong things about the Silmarillion tradition for years. So that's fun. Um... Anyway, yeah, it's it's one of the things, man. It's one of the things about the history of Middle-earth. Um, there are sometimes such awesome things that are just, like, buried in the middle of a chapter or middle of a set of notes, right, that um, it's easy to miss stuff. And I, I've totally been missing this for a while. Anyway, we will um, we'll see. We'll see if we get that far. But first, we almost finished talking about dwarves next time. Ah, David Michael Roberts, you were right that the Wandering of Hurin goes a little bit further, but it's not the Quenta, right? That's that's the whole point. That's the whole point. Like, he did write more stuff, but not the Quenta Silmarillion. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's, um, uh, let's go. One more thing about dwarves I wanted to mention. Uh, the issue sort of, well, okay. So we're looking at the ways in which he's doing some world building, thinking more about dwarves and trying to kind of make this work. This is the, the context in which the story of Aule and Yavanna uh, begins to emerge here for the first time. Um, really, as I said, I, I think the last chapter of the published, um, is that true? The last chapter of the published Silmarillion to be, of the, like, of, of the Quintus Silmarillion as published in the published Silmarillion to be written. I think the latest addition to the story? I'm trying to think of a chapter that is, like, conceptually a later edition. Like, Of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, maybe, but um, but maybe even not, actually. Um, no, Maglin gets revised, but um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I know, I do have to be specific, Chad. I'm trying to be, trying to be clear there. Um, but, um, anyway, anyway. Point is, He's working out this dwarf stuff pretty late, and we were looking at sort of the way that this was was emerging. This is the last, just a, a few things. These are um, three different little notes that Tolkien wrote, was trying out, uh, in order to describe the origin of the dwarf races, like how they came about. And in particular, of course, he's thinking about the question of um, how did dwarves procreate when he just created seven boys, Aule. But it is said that to each dwarf, Iluvatar added a mate of female kind. Yet because he would not amend the work of Aule, and Aule had yet made only things of male form, therefore the women of the dwarves resemble their men more than all other speaking races. 
B. He wrought in secret in a hall under the mountains in Middle-earth. There he made, this is Aule presumably, he made first one dwarf, the eldest of all, and after he made six others, the fathers of their race. And then he began to make others again, like to them, but of female kind, to be their mates. But he wearied, and when he had made six more, he rested. And he returned to the seven fathers, and he looked at them, and they looked at him, and whatever motion was in his thought, that motion they performed. And Aule was not pleased, but he began to teach them the language that he had designed for them, hoping thus to instruct them. But Iluvatar knew all that was done, and in the very hour that the eldest dwarf first spoke with tongue, Iluvatar spoke to Aule, and Aule did something or other. See, Aule made one, and then six, and he began to make mates for them of female form, and he made six, and then he wearied. Thus he buried six pairs, but one, Durin, the eldest, he laid alone. Okay, so um, these are three different sort of starts and stops, right, of him trying to uh, explain the beginnings of the dwarves. And in particular, in all three of these, he's interested in the question of dwarf women, the origins of dwarf women, uh, and uh, uh, explanation of how the dwarves came to procreate. Um, so, lots of things to notice here. First thing to notice, his first attempt there, which is possibly chronologically first, but it's hard to tell with some of these notes. Um, we have uh, not Aule, but Iluvatar himself creating dwarf women. Iluvatar, to each dwarf, Iluvatar added a mate of female kind. So the first situation, right, is Aule makes the seven boys, and then Iluvatar is like, smack. You know, come on, Aule. Um, <laughs> that ain't gonna work. Um, so he's like, well, I'll provide a little supplement here, because, like, you know, there needs to be, you know, boy and girl dwarves in order for dwarves to procreate, and so uh, I'll make girls. But then he's like, because he would not amend the work of Aule, right? He's like, but you chose the form, so I'm just going to use the same form. So I'm going to make the boys and girls look exactly alike, right? Because I'm just replicating what you made just with what I guess, you know, different bits, right? I mean, like, it's, 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 it's a little bit odd. It's a little bit odd. Um, JJ, I wonder, um, had Aule anticipated procreation, or was he originally thinking the seven would be it? What was his goal just to create seven children, right? Um, just to hang out with him and, like, make stuff and learn stuff, I guess. And he wasn't really thinking of them as, a like, a race of creatures uh, to go on and uh, go forth and be fruitful and multiply and fill parts of the earth or underneath the earth. Um, he seems, um, I think that's possible, JJ. One possible interpretation of the sort of the, uh, um, what Aule was thinking or not thinking there, um, was that it's sort of a reflection of Aule not intending to make a people, but out, but Iluvatar blessing his work and saying, I'm not only going to let you keep them, I'm going to enable them to expand and procreate and continue. Um, yeah, so it's possible that that is a, a sort of an explanation that's behind the, um, uh, that's behind the 
the that particular story, right? But in the other two versions, it's Aule himself who makes the dwarf women, right? This idea of Iluvatar making the women. And again, you can see there's a kind of, especially, J.J., whether or not we, you know, sp- speculate firmly that, you know, Aule was, was, was totally only planning to have seven and had never thought of going beyond that. We, we can't say that for sure, of course. It's a good theory, and I, I, I like that reading. Um, but one way or the other, the idea that Iluvatar's... Um, even in the published Silmarillion version, right, there's the initial work of Aule, and then there's the sort of extra work that Iluvatar does, the, the additional blessing that Iluvatar bestows upon them in order to make them into a real boy. I, I mean, real creatures, right? Um, when he sort of adopts them as the stepchildren of Iluvatar, that's not his phrase, that's my phrase, but, um, right, the thing that he does to give them free will uh, and to make them independent of Aule's thought. So the idea that Iluvatar adds something over and above, right, um, which has the effect of making them into a people of their own. That seems to be an element, an important element of the story, right? All the way, all the way through. That Tolkien would choose to have that blessing of Iluvatar be also connected explicitly to breeding, right? To being fruitful and multiplying. Makes sense. Just, like Those two things seem to me to kind of go together, right? Um, to say, I'm going to make them into a people. I'm going to bless them as a people. And to bestow upon them, especially with, right, the, the, the making of the dwarves um, is uh, already a story which has some significant, I've always felt, some significant Hebrew Bible overtones, right? And I'm not going back into the dwarves and the Jewishness again, there are lots of uh, Hebrew Bible overtones in many other stories in the Silmarillion too, um, uh, but in particular, like the the the, it's a very interesting comparison to look at, like the the story of Aule and Iluvatar and the dwarves and the sacrifice of Isaac, for instance. Um, uh, th- I think that those stories are connected. I mean, I think that uh, I, I I would. I would not a source text exactly, but um, but I think that that's a, a a story that seems to be lurking behind to some extent um, the uh, uh, the story of Aule and the dwarves, um, and that he would think in at least one version of this to add something quite like the Eden blessing, right? Uh, a Genesis one thing, right? Um, you know, having. <laughs> Already, it seems, I think, to some extent, having Genesis on the brain here, um, the idea that, like, he's going to have God come in and say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to create woman and say, be fruitful and multiply. uh, That, again, it seems to it seems to fit. It seems to 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 kind of work in that whole uh, sort of concept. Um, Sorry. uh, Yeah. so, sorry, Jocelyn, I hope that that helped. I, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't drop something like that, like talking about the parallels between Aule and uh, the Aule and the dwarf story and the sacrifice of Isaac, and then not, like, explain it at all. But, um, uh, 
yeah. Anyway, uh, I would. Um, uh, but I think I'm going to have to do that. Having done that, uh, I, 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 with apologies, I think I'm going to have to do that because I just, there's just not time. Um, but uh, but anyway, as I say, the idea of a Luvatar gifting them with this capability, you know, creating the female and gifting them with the capability of, of, uh, um, uh, of procreating seems to, you know, be in the ballpark that it feels like we already are to some extent. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, in the other two, as I say, it's Aule who makes the mates. Um, notice I, one of the things when thinking about this in the context of the world building concerning dwarf stuff that he'd been writing, um, it seems to me that um, one of the questions, uh, one of the questions that Tolkien seemed to be dealing with. Um, so, you know, the, of course, the famous story about Tolkien writing the first line of The Hobbit right in an examination book and then, you know, saying, as he said in interviews, like that he had no idea what a Hobbit was and he, he now had to figure out, you know, what that was that he just wrote about and so the story began. Um, that is clearly a kind of thing that Tolkien does a lot, right, where he he says something and then he's like, well, now I have to figure out what that means, right? I have to figure out what that's about. Um, and, um, uh, so it, it seems to me that one of the things that's going on here in all three of these versions is that he has written that line about dwarf women being, being often mistaken for dwarf men, right? The line that gets in, you know, uh, the, uh, the line that gets into the appendix, right? Um, and which he then is expanding on some in the, you know, talking about female dwarf beards and stuff um, in uh, the Concerning Dwarfs essay, right? But but again, this both of these sort of strike, all three of these sort of strike me as, I'm not saying this is the only reason that these are important or the only work that he's doing here, but it seems to me that one of the things that he's doing in all three of these places and all three of these versions is trying to answer the question, what does that mean? Or like, why, why, why is that? Why is it that, why should dwarf men and women be so similar and mistaken for each other when that's not true of the other races, right? There, there needs to be, this is a, a thing that he said was true. Um, and now he's trying to both explain what that looks like as he goes into more detail with the beards in the Concerning Dwarfs essay. But then he also, I think, is coming back and trying to answer that question sort of mythologically here as well. Um, one reason why they look so similar is that Iluvatar is like, you said that's how you wanted to look, so I'm going to make them look that way and I'm going to make the women look exactly the same, right? Um, and then um, in the other two, we see again similarly, like because he didn't know, because he'd never seen, you know, when he so he first he makes the men, and then he goes back and makes the women. Like he didn't, the females were, um, 
it doesn't seem to be part of his Aule's primary design, right? He didn't sit down and make... So maybe, J.J., it is because... Um, maybe it is because he wasn't thinking that way at first. He was only thinking of them as just, I'm going to make myself seven helpers, right? And so he designed the seven. And then comes back and he's like, oh yeah, uh, now I need females so that they can procreate, right? Um, and they can become a people. And that's great. Um, but it means that he didn't have a plan for that originally. When he conceived of humans, or dwarves in this case, like when he conceived of like the species, he didn't envision like male and female in some kind of like, you know, differing or complementary way or anything like that. It, it wasn't like a package deal. It was like my helpers who happen to be masculine or whatever. And then he's like, oh, and also others which need, you know, female bits uh, so that procreation can happen. But, you know, I like the first design song. I, I'm going to I'm going to stick with what I know. Right. Um, uh, if, I mean, so if. That seems to be in both of the latter two cases, when it's Aule who's doing the um, adding of females, in both cases, it is kind of, I hate to say, an an afterthought, because that makes it sound a little more pejorative than I mean. Um, but there is a sense in which that seems to be kind of fair to say about Aule's design here, um, that the females were afterthoughts. Um that he only made them a female kind to be their mates, as it says. And he began to make mates for them, a female form, he says, in part C, right? Um, and that he, again, he had model, you know, model A, and he liked model A, and he kept rolling it out, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, so it's, again, we're not, we're, you know, he doesn't, you know, these are short little snippets, and so we don't get the full um, uh, the full explanation there. But it seems to be part of the... It's hard for me to see the design of dwarf women not being put forward as a blemish in some sense. Whether it's because... Ali didn't plan that out well, right? Or because also notice that when we do have our, or in the first case, when Iluvatar is like, whatever, I'm going to make them like you chose, right? Um, or when Ali does it, notice that both of those accounts um, of Ali's creation end with him um, being just like trailing off and being weary, right? Um, both times he just, what, he, he starts making women, but doesn't even get around to making seven whole women for the, he only makes six uh, dwarf partners for the seven dwarf fathers um, because he gets tired, right? And so again, in both cases, we're being given sort of a context of, um, uh, of his limitations being visible in the creation of dwarf women. Um, I don't know. I'm, 
there are there there are lots of different ways that you can take this, but I find it interesting that all of his answers, if these are his three answers to the question, um, why do dwarf women look just like dwarf men? One thing that they all seem to have in common is, um, Kazale didn't do his best work that day. Basically, seems to me to be the uh, uh, seems to me to be the implication. Um, but um, yeah. Anyway, I, I so not sure what to do. Not sure if that's right. Not sure what to do with that. But um, yeah, <laughs> I do agree that weariness seems to be a theme among the Valar. That is that they get weary. That they have limitations. That they don't always do the right thing and that even when they try to do the right thing they often screw up yeah i mean like we can see that in lots of places um yeah now um one last note before we move on from the dwarves here notice that bit at the end of story b here but iluvatar knew all that was done and in the very hour that the eldest dwarf first spoke with tongue iluvatar spoke to aule and aule responded right um that Iluvatar would wait until the dwarf first speaks with tongue, right? That that the dwarf create, you know, uh, sub creation of Aule, whom he's already discovered to be merely an automaton, right? Um, only performing whatever motion was in his thought, right? Um, so he's already been dissatisfied with his own work. But he still teaches them language. But he doesn't officially get in trouble, right? Like, the hammer doesn't come down until the first dwarf speaks with tongue. Then it's official, right? Once the first dwarf has language independently, now the transgression is complete. Like, now it counts. And it's like the... the the implication doesn't say explicitly what it means or why it's significant that, you know, it only happened when the first dwarf spoke with tongue. But the fact that Luvatar, who was aware of all that was done, right, but he was waiting for that point, right, makes, gives that a kind of significance. And that just um, seems wholly unsurprising, doesn't it? Uh, that Tolkien would ascribe that kind of, um, uh, that kind of significance uh, to, um, uh, to speaking with um, uh, with words. Anyway, all right. Um, I only have a couple things to say about the Of Men chapter, uh, mostly because, again, the published Of Men chapter in the published Silmarillion is this one, right? Almost word for word. So it's, it's what we're already familiar with, and there's not too much to notice. The th- main thing I wanted to sort of point to... Um, uh, that I thought was interesting was the changing of the chronology. In the old history of the Adain, now rejected, Hador the Golden-Haired, third of the fathers of the, of the men of the West, was born in Eriador in 390 and came over the Blue Mountains into Beleriand in 420. Unlike the development in the House of Beor, however, Hador, Glorindal, retained his chronological place in the history. As will be seen shortly, his original birth date remained the same, and his sons, Galdor, uh, changed from Galleon, changed from Gumlin, and Gundor. Uh, But with the much earlier date of the coming of the men into the West, 
he was moved downwards in the genealogy to become the ruler of the people in the fourth generation from Marak, under whose leadership they had entered Beleriand in 313. His father was Hothal, son of Magor, son of Malach, son of Marach. Okay, um, let me... Uh, here's what I think is most interesting about this. So the, the, the simple fact that Christopher is pointing to is that in this revision of the Quintus Silmarillion, um, which you'll remember is quite different here from the Grey Annals. In the Grey Annals, we still had Haleth the Hunter, right? The masculine Haleth uh, who came over and was leading the second group of people. And it was Hador who came over the mountains leading the third group of people, right? Um, he decides to push back the arrival of men in Beleriand. He moves it, he moves it back a couple generations. Um, so he's got to make changes in the stories, or at least in the genealogies of the humans. And the thing that is most interesting to me here is that the fact that he makes two contrary, well, contrary makes it sound like they conflict with each other or something, which I don't mean. He makes two different choices, right? Um, in doing that. He he wants to get to the same place. So he's not going to move the ends of the genealogies, right? Like Hurin and Turin and Baron and Tuor, they all have to show up at their appointed times, right? So if you're going to move the coming of men into the West further back from the coming of Hurin and Turin and Baron and Tuor, then you have to add some generations in there. And with the House of Bayor and the House of Hador, he makes the two different decisions about where to add the generations. With the House of Bayor, he adds the generations uh, after Bayor, right? So he gives Bayor some extra descendants between Bayor and Beren, right? So he keeps the story of Bayor intact. Bayor is still the first. Uh, the leader of the first house of, of the Adain that come over into Beleriand. And he he leaves Baron's own story pretty much unaltered in his relationship with Finrod and all that stuff. Um, but then he adds in some extra generations of uh, folks, right, until we get to the... Uh, until we get to, to, to Baron. When it comes to Hador, however, he makes a different choice. And he adds the extra generations not after Hador and before Hurin and Turin. He doesn't spread them apart like he does with Beor and Beren, right? He keeps Hador and Hurin and Turin the same number of generations apart, but he adds generations in front of him, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And David Michael Roberts, I suspect you are correct that the the crisis of the birth date and time of aging of Myglen probably does, probably is connected with his decision to change the date of the arrival of men. Um, I think that that is probably... Uh, I, I That seems likely. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm also not sure, uh, and would have to double check the, the dates too. Um, but I could easily believe that those two things, uh, are, that, that there might be causal links between those things. Um, but in any case, whether or no, um, 
this is a f- what I am most interested in in this latter choice is if you think about this the choice offers one of two fundamental choices. So like, let's think about those two choices. The choice to add more generations. And so we've got the origin point, Bayor and Hador, and we've got the destination point, Baron and Hurin, right? Turin, technically, but Hurin is sufficiently important. And Hurin and Turin, we know, our father and son, right? So um, you've got Hador and Hurin, and you've got Bayor and Baron. In the one case, he spreads the two of them out. And that changes the story in a particular way. With Hador, he changes the configuration of Hador. He changes the story of Hador, I think, much more radically than he changes the story of Beor. Why? What does that show? What, what, are the, what are the priorities that seem to underlie that? Now, here we're just speculating, right? But, um, but I think it's a very interesting kind of speculation. Um, with Beor, so that your your sort of first question is, it, I think, it seems to me to come down to thinking of Beor and Hador, the origin points, the uh, the originals of those genealogies. What is the most important element of their story? The fact that they were the ones who came over the mountains, the fact that they are the at the top of that genealogy, or is it their link to the later heroes whom, frankly, we really care about, right? Um, I mean, like, Bayor and Hador are cool and all, but we don't really get stories about them, right? It's Baron and Hurin that we care about. Um, so is the, is, which is more important? And he seems to have chosen differently in either case. For him to say, okay, for Bayor, the fact that he's the first, that's what matters most. That tracks with me. Right, that makes perfect sense because, of course, Be- there was always the story of Beor and um, uh, Finrod, right? Like Beor coming over and and him, you know, like the the fact that he was the first human that the Noldor ever met, like that was a big deal, right? And so, for him to change that story and be like, oh, actually, that wasn't Beor. Well, if it wasn't Beor, he'd have had to tell the same story about someone else, right? Like Beor is needed to be, I mean, like somebody has to fill that role of like being the first human that any of the Noldor ever met. And if it's not Baron, you're just going to be replacing Baron. And then what's Baron's job in the genealogy? Nothing, right? That's all he's got. Um, so it makes perfect sense that he would say, all right, Beor has to come first. So in order to fill this, the, the, chrono- the chronology, I've got to add a couple generations after him, right? With Hador, it's less of a no-brainer. Because he was always the leader of the third people. So, like, he's not first on the scene, right? So that's not his story. What was his story was that he was, like, the significance of his people. Who they were and what they did. And specifically their relationship with the elves, right? So that when we get to Hurin and to Turin, they are established within a context of Hithlum and, you know, the, the sort of the relationship with the, uh, the elves that we see Hurin having in the Nirnaith Arnudiad, for instance, right? Um, so that's the, seems to be the crucial element about Hador's character. And so, again, speculating, 
it would seem that perhaps if you separate that too much, if it turns out not to be Hurin's grandpa, who was the great hero peer of elven lords, right? Um, who was established as king in Hithlum and, uh, uh, you know, in Dorloman and uh, uh, is, you know, and, and then Hurin is like the, is, is in very close proximity to that particular relationship. So that who are, if, in, if, if, you, if you added generations in between, it's perhaps Tolkien was thinking that adding generations between Hador and Hurin would weaken that link, would make Hurin not the sort of semi-immediate heir, right, of Hador, uh, Glorendal, peer of Elven kings, right, um, but instead would merely make him the distant descendant. Right. Um, for Hurin to come forth and be like, my great, great, great grandfather, you know, established this relationship when, and you guys respected my great, great, great grandfather. So you should respect me, too. It's harder. Right. If you want if the if the story with him is that relationship with the elves and the kind of respect, the kind of relationship that they as a people had and that the, their king uh, as an individual had with the elves and with the elf kings, um, it, um, it would make sense as you, it would, you would want to keep that more immediate. But that choice has a cost. And the cost is to push Hador down the genealogy. If you've got to add uh, people above him, then he's not the one who leads that people into... Beleriand, and he instead becomes a random dude. So I just looking at the genealogy. Um, uh, I, I, I'm showing here a copy of the genealogy uh, that is in the text, um, and the point is merely that Hador Lorendal, as he's called here, the warrior Golden Head, is in the middle of this genealogy. Right, he is the uh, great, great grandson, right? He is the, no, wait, like, let's see. Um, he is the grandson of the second child of the son of the dude who led his people across into Beleriand, right? I mean, like, that's, um, that's, uh, that's pretty indirect, right? Uh, so, I mean, as we see, he is, he, is, he is way down the list. Now, again, he's important because he's... Like, what's important about Hador in this genealogy is primarily not what is above him, but what's below him, right? It's his kids and grandkids that are really important. In particular, his son Galdor, uh, who then has Hurin and Huor, right? And now we're in business, right? Um, and, um, notice even how in the notes that are written onto the side of this genealogy, there's a double asterisk next to Hador Lorendal's name. And the double asterisk reads, Magor and Hathol, that is to say the grandfather and father respectively of Hador Lorendal, Magor and Hathol served no elf lord. They dwelt near the sources of Tiglin. Hador served the elf lords of Hithlam and was first lord of Dorlomen. So what we have, what Hador's story becomes not, there were three uh, groups of men that came over 
um, he was one of the leaders of the three, and he led his people into this particular direction, right, and became king of Dorloman and, and uh, you know, be- became the lord of Dorloman and, and uh, you know, pure of elven kings. Like, that's, um, that's not his story anymore. Now the story of Hador, Goldenhead, becomes... Um, he is from this family that came over third and concerning whom we don't care about too very many people earlier on. Marek came over, but you don't need to worry about him. And his son was named Malak. And, you know, he doesn't matter either. Um, but eventually, Malak had a great-grandson named Hador, and he raised himself above his all of his people who had come before, right? Um, his, uh, um, and so he begins like a new chapter, right? He sort of stands out. It's, it's, it's a question of like the distinguished hero emerging from comparatively undistinguished roots. I'm not just trying to like diss on the rest of the house of Marak here. Um, but again, that's the, he was the originator, right? He was Marach. He was in the Marach spot. He was the leader of the people who came across originally. By displacing him from that position, now he just becomes a later descendant, several generations later descendant, um, native of Beleriand, who brings his people to this new place, both geographically and politically, and in some sense, uh, you know, like... Uh, um, certainly in the respect um, of the elves. Um, the elf friend is um, is definitely the important one, Chad. Absolutely. Um, and you're right that it will be elves writing the book, so it makes sense that he's the one focused on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, this makes good sense, but it does change the story. And I don't know how many of you had this experience, but when I was first reading The Silmarillion, I was always confused like the genealogy of Hurin and Turin always flummoxed me because it seemed to me so strange. This is what like there there are many places in the history of Middle-earth where we come across something and I've commented on this many times before where we we come across something um where we see Tolkien makes a change but it leaves a kind of awkwardness. And I'm like, oh, that's why I've always found that so awkward. Like, now I understand why that awkwardness exists. That always kind of bothered me. This was always an awkwardness um, that, um, uh, this was always an awkwardness that bothered me. Um, because I was like, why, if if they're the people of Marach, why is nobody why nobody but nobody counts their genealogy back to Marach? Why are we told, on the one hand, not only that he was one of the three that led their people into Beleriand, but his people were the most numerous of all of the people? I'm like, this guy's important, right? Like the cues the text is giving me is remember Marach, the house of Marach is going to be really important, and then Marach, like we don't care about Marach ever again, and I, I feel like then afterwards the text is telling me to forget about Marach. No, it's all about Hador. It's all about Hador Goldenhair. And I'm like, yeah, but wait, it wasn't Hador, it was Marak. And this is me like way back when I was first reading the Silmarillion. And I'm like, but it's not Hador, it's Marak. Why, why, why um, do we not, why is everybody not saying Hurin, who is the descendant of Marak? Uh, anyway, it's, it always, um, uh, it always seemed to me odd and confusing. 
um, that um, that this shift and now like you can see it was in fact artificial. The original story when Tolkien first wrote it, Hador was in both places. Um, it made perfect sense that they would say of the House of Hador because it was his people originally, right? Um, but um, anyway, I think um, uh, that was. Um, I think it's interesting to see the story choices that he is making here and some of the consequences of those story choices and how he alters it. And again, in the end, I think what he's done is kind of double down on the significance of Hador's story, right? Hador is important. He was always important, most important, not just because he was one of the three who led their people into Beleriand but because he was the one of the three who became the peer of Elven Kings and the Lord of Dor Loman. Um, now that ver that element of his story by stripping him of the other element of his story that is, is strongly emphasized now having him emerge from out of nowhere in the middle of this genealogy, Hador, the son of nobody in particular, the grandson of nobody in particular, the great, great grandson of that dude that we don't care about um, and who didn't really matter. Um, but yet he becomes like he emerges from that genealogy to become the peer of Elven Kings and the Lord of Dor Loman. OK, there we go. Um, that really lets us see um, uh, what is important to Tolkien about Hador's story. Uh, and I think even though. I still think it's a little bit, uh, um, a little bit confusing. Um, but, um, anyway, of course the third people, uh, the people of Haleth, uh, undergo that other change, but we've talked about it already. So I didn't want to talk about it a whole lot more. And there wasn't a particular passage I wanted to look at, but of course the major thing, this is also the moment when he decides that Haleth is a woman. Um, and he changes, which is, uh, Interesting, not only sort of narrative-wise, but even linguistically, because Haleth is a boy's name in uh, in Old English. I mean, that's why it's very right that Haleth, you know, I, I mean, again, it was, uh, Haleth was, Haleth was one of the sons of Helm, right? If I'm remembering my Rohiric genealogies properly. Um, yeah, that. That, of course, that's why they, in the movies, right, they had the kid with the oversized armor um, that Aragorn talks to named Haleth, um, which I think, you know, confuses a lot of people, right? Because, um, uh, you know, more people know Haleth from the Silmarillion, I think, than remember the trivia question that Haleth was one of the sons of Helm Hammerhand who died. Um, and so are likely to be like, why did they make Haleth a boy? Right. That doesn't even make any sense. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he would have been. Right? He was uh, in Rohan history, um, which, remember, predates this change. He changed Haleth, the son of Helm, will have already existed prior to his decision that Haleth of the Haladin should be a woman. Um, so it's very interesting to me that he did that particular intervention and said, no, no, I'm going to create a female character and not only any female character, I'm going to make her into a badass female character, right? Is how he is the change that he makes. Um, 
and, and you know invents the whole story of the death of her father and brother right and and the encounter with uh Caranthir, uh and then their departure and you know her um strong but stubborn leadership right leading them into the west um so he has made and I, the thing that I think is fascinating about that of the three so again we had the three leaders, the three original men, right? Beor and Haleth the Dude, Haleth the Hunter, and Hador, uh, Hador Goldenhead. Um, and he makes alterations. He, he, when he makes his revisions here, he makes decisions about each one of their stories, right? We talked about Beor. Beor's the story, the part of Beor's story that matters is him being first and being friends with Finrod. The part of Hador's story that matters most is he's going to be the one who emerges and becomes the peer of Elven Kings and First Lord of Dor Loman and the grandfather uh, of Hurinthalion. Haleth is the only one, and he's like, story totally different. Or I'm mean, not totally different. We saw that the Haladin were already kind of like the Haladin, right? He doesn't totally change the nature of their culture or the trajectory of their people or anything like that. But the story of the original, it's the only one you could easily say that in the stories of Beor and the stories of Hador, he's decided, though he's changing the circumstances, he's keeping their essential narrative. It just pushed him to choose what was the essential narrative about them, right? But with Haleth, he's changing, um, he's changing the essential narrative of what that character was um, and what went on there. And this new and awesome story emerges when he does that, right? Again, not just that he he doesn't just sort of take the accomplishments of Haleth the Hunter and give them to the woman Haleth. The changing, the decision to say, no, Haleth, the leader and founder of the Haladin, is going to be a woman leads to the origin of the brand new story. And once he gets going on that, right, once we get the death of uh, Haldad and Haldar, and then the, uh, and the, and then the confrontation with Karanthir uh, and the uh, unfriendship, though it's not called that, right, of uh, Thingol and the elves of Doriath, um, they, the, the the story the character of Haleth begins to emerge right and begins to take sort of its own new shape here at that point, um, but um, anyway so it's fun to see these things emerging, so anyway that's an example of me um, not having a not having much to say about the of men chapter uh, I just want to make that perfectly clear okay. Um, it's one random passage, um, which I think is interesting for a small reason. Um, spoiler, before I read this passage, it's not Sauron I'm interested in, in this change. But it's another one of those passages that's crossed out and rewritten, and so therefore I'm always interested in these. Sauron was the chief servant of the evil Vala whom he had suborned to his service in Valinor from among the people of the gods. He was become a wizard of dreadful power, master of necromancy, foul in wisdom. 
What an awesome phrase that is, by the way. Foul in wisdom. Um, now Sauron, whom the Noldor called Gorth... Now this is the chain. This is a revised version. Now Sauron, whom the Noldor called Gorthu, was the chief servant of Morgoth. In Valinor he had dwelt among the people of the gods, but there Morgoth had drawn him to evil and to his service. He was become now a sorcerer of dreadful power, master of shadows and of ghosts, foul in wisdom. Okay. Um, there is one word that, I, he, that he changed that I am most interested in in this passage, and it is wizard. I am fascinated at his choice to change the word wizard. Um, remember, this is the first passage that uh, that I read is from the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion. The later passage is part of this revision in 1957-1958. In other words, he has written the Lord of the Rings in between these two. And whenever I'm coming back to changes that he's making between 1937 and 1957, I cannot help but remember the Lord of the Rings sitting in between those two moments, right? Um, So, um, he says, Sauron, he was become a wizard of dreadful power, master of necromancy. And he changes that to, he was become now a sorcerer of dreadful power, master of shadows and of ghosts, foul in wisdom. Okay, what does this reflect? Now, again, there's always a danger when uh, we look at small changes like this that we're making a, a great deal out of nothing. So that's this, the, the, the normal quantity of salt, you know, this should be taken with. Um, but Chad, that's exactly what I think. Wizard had taken on a new definition during that time. And David Michael, that's exactly what I'm thinking as well. I'm remembering our discussions during especially the Return of the Shadow, but even looking at the character of the Witch King as the Witch King grows all the way through the draft uh, development of the Lord of the Rings story. And remember, he was the Wizard King until very, very late in the game. So if we think of if we think of this change from wizard to sorcerer in this passage, and we think of uh, two other sort of quick data points that I would kind of put into that graph, right? Um, one is exactly that. Um, the thinking of, well, no, let me go back further. First is the way that the word wizard is used in The Hobbit. In particular, the way the idea of the White Council of the Wizards that we get at the end of The Hobbit um, when Gandalf is explaining how the White Council of the Wizards met and decided to um, take action against the Necromancer. Right? Because he asked a brief Elrond on this, because how would Elrond know? That was wizard business. Um, Both in that place and in the beginning of the draft versions of The Lord of the Rings seems to be that Tolkien's idea of wizard, that wizard is, uh, being a wizard is more like being a carpenter than it is like being an elf, if you see what I mean. It's not what you are, it's what you do. Um, Gandalf is an old man who is also a wizard, right? That's his, 
That's his, that's his job. And one of the problems with the wizard King is that he's one of their number who's gone bad, right? There's, there's like some internal policing that has to be done. This is why Gandalf and the witch King are like opposite numbers um, for much of the narrative. And we can still, you can still see um, the memory of that in the final published text that Gandalf is not across from Sauron, you know, on the chessboard. He's across from the Witch King, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so the way that the concept of wizard becomes developed during the process of writing The Lord of the Rings as the character of Saruman appears and develops, as the character of the Witch King of Angmar develops, as the character of Gandalf develops. The idea of what it means to be a wizard is something quite different. And it certainly becomes, at the end of the day, the wizard, like, it's not that all wizards are good because Saruman's an evil wizard, but that's a really big deal, right? And the Witch King of Angmar is a big deal, but he's not the same kind of deal as Saruman, right? Um, of course, the fact that there is a an, uh, one of the wizards of the council has gone bad and needs to be dealt with uh, internally um, by a member of the council is still in the final story, right? Shifted to Saruman, um, and I cast you from the order and from the council by Gandalf uh, rather than the Witch King, right? Um, so it's he didn't, as usual, when he decides to cut that, he puts it in his little drawer, right? And then he takes it out later on um, instead of just chucking it into the bin. Um, but anyway, yes, the, when wizards become defined as emissaries of the Valar who are incarnated in physical form, right? And then live among the people and do their thing whatever their thing happens to be, which appears to be different for each of them or for most of them and whatever the heck the blue wizards were doing. Um, anyway, the, um, when that happens now, we can't call Sauron a wizard, right? He was become a wizard of dreadful power in 1937. That seems to me just to describe what he does, a master of necromancy, right? So he had become, he had developed this particular kind of power. Um, you might even paraphrase that perilously as Sauron had learned magic and how to use it. Dreadful magic, death magic, foul in wisdom. Um, I would even point to the word wisdom, I think, um, uh, as an interesting one in this context. Uh, because again, so the the um, the older use of the word wisdom, um, even in English, uh, is less about. So, <laughs> if um, if you've played Dungeons and Dragons, you will have spent some amount of time, maybe a little, maybe a lot defining and describing what the difference between intelligence and wisdom is, right? Um, those are two mental stats. 
and they mean different things, but they're similar. And you have to think carefully to define what is the difference between intelligence and wisdom. And sometimes you will find yourself um, kind of crossing over the line and realizing, oh, no, wait, that's really more an intelligence thing than a wisdom thing. Right. Um, what does a person who has a lot of intelligence but low wisdom look like? And what does a person who has very little wisdom but a high intelligence look like? Um, or the other way around. Whatever. Anyway, you see what I mean. Um, this distinction between wisdom and intelligence was much easier in the old in the, in the older days, right? In the archaic uses of the word wisdom, because wisdom was associated uh, with the ability to do things. Um, Searuman means wise man, not in the sense of somebody who has knowledge, but somebody who can do stuff who knows how to do things. If you are Sayaru, if you're wise in that old English sense, you are, uh, you know how to get stuff done. You're clever, right? You probably can like make machines and stuff. You might have a mind of metal and wheels. Can't rule it out, right? Um, uh, people who, yeah, craftiness, crafty knowledge. That's exactly it. Um, so the, the clear sort of canonical use of this, um, any of you who are familiar with the King James translation of the Bible may remember that um, when Moses was on Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments and he gets instructions, you'll probably remember, about how to build the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. And he is told to seek out those who have who have had the spirit of wisdom bestowed upon them in order to make the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. And then we get another passage describing almost in word for word the same terms, the actual doing of the thing, the actual making of the Ark of the Covenant and the making of the tabernacle by these wise people who are wise not because they, you know, have reflected upon their years and um, gained, you know, much seasoned knowledge that can be applied in, in, uh, in important ways, but because they're good with their hands. They're carpenters, right? Um, they're people who can make stuff, who can do things with their hands. Um, that's the old idea of wisdom. And as I, as I have suggested, I get Sayarum, Sayaruman is an, is a, that's his name to the people of Rohan, right? Like that's, um, uh, it's it's an Old English word. And in Old English, that's what it means. Um, wise in that sense. So when Tolkien in 1937 here is describing Sauron as foul in wisdom, he doesn't just mean that he's, you know, he's very cunning and very and very experienced and but applies that experience in um vile ways, right, or towards vile ends. I think he is talking about mastering techniques, right, being able to do things. Uh, he, he is capable of performing acts. They are foul acts that he is capable of performing. He has become a wizard of dreadful power. Um, whatever, I don't know where wizards of the White Council in The Hobbit go to school, do they have a, 
hidden castle somewhere where they go when they turn 11 in order to learn wizardry. I do not know. Uh, but it seems to be a trade or at the very least a profession, right? Maybe a, a calling. I don't know. But somebody taught them. They learned it, right? It's a thing. It's not what they are. It's what they do. Um, and I that seems to be... So Sauron develops these skills. He becomes a wizard of dreadful power, master of necromancy, foul in wisdom. It might be more like Roke than Hogwarts. Can't rule it out, David Michael. Um, so, um, uh, yeah. Um, uh, Everett says, why does the Lord of the Rings transliterate instead of translating Saruman's name? Um, uh, in part, it's possible that in The Hobbit, he might have just called him wise guy. Because that's kind of how he rolled in The Hobbit, with less so with personal names, right? But like, oh, his place names are like that. Um, but um, Wise Guy is um, not a great name <laughs> for one of your your big bads, right? Um, but um, uh, but but I think also because he, I, I, I think he liked the sound of it, right? I mean, he liked the the sort of old English flavor of the name Saruman. Um, which I think, by the way, is one of the reasons why many new readers uh, uh, of Tolkien get confused between Sauron and Saruman because their names seem superficially very similar. I think that in Tolkien's ear, those two didn't sound anything alike. Uh, there are times when I think that Tolkien, Tolkien is so steeped in philology, right? He's so steeped in the history of words and names that he is sometimes tone deaf to the obvious. Um, I think he didn't think that Saruman and Sauron sounded at all alike. I doubt he anticipated people confusing them at all because he's like, one is, you know, of Elvish construction, the other one is Old English. They don't sound anything alike, only if you pronounce them correctly, right? Um, yeah, Tyrion upon Tuna is another example of this same kind of tone deafness, I think. Uh, uh, Tirathon, that's exactly it. Um, but um, anyway, um, yeah, uh, good. Oh, so uh, Cecilia is asking about wisdom in Proverbs. I, footnote there, I'm not talking about the Hebrew word. That is being translated that I'm really just talking about the English usage. I'm using that as an illustration of the English usage of the word wisdom um, to talk about the Hebrew words that are being used in Exodus and in Proverbs would be a different subject, which is a very interesting subject. But I can't let myself digress too far onto that. Um, Emily Teleporno would be another example. Now, I think he has some excuses, a little bit of excuse there. Um, as um, his ear wouldn't have quite so uh, strong a reason to re react against teleporno as ours would, but still. Um, yeah, anyway, um, moving back. Wizard. Wizard of Dreadful Power. His shift, then, is not just from wizard to sorcerer, but I think... Notice also he moves off of the word necromancy, which, of course, he used uh, as the name of uh, the Sauron figure uh, in 
the Hobbit. And I say the Sauron figure because he clearly is the Sauron figure. Like, um, it's he's in the he's in a stronghold in the forest, i.e., where he fled to after he escaped from Baron and Luthien, or from Baron and Huon, really. Or, sorry, from Luthien and Huon, really. Baron had little to do with it. Um, anyway, uh, but um, but yeah. Anyway, the point is that um, he's moving away from that, right? So he changes it from wizard to sorcerer, and then he changes master of necromancy to master of shadows and of ghosts. Notice the implication there. Necromancy literally means the divination by the dead, right? Deriving knowledge from the dead. That's what necromancy, the word necromancy means. Um, and he was, we looked at the development of the necromantic concept and his development of the idea of necromancy when we talked about uh, Morgoth's ring. Um, but notice here that again, changing master of necromancy Wizard of Dreadful Power, Master of Necromancy. That sounds like his degree status, right? He became a Wizard of Dreadful Power. Master, so like a Master of Necromancy is kind of like a Master of Arts or a Master of Sciences, right? He got his Masters of Necromancy. Um, that's how you know he's a Wizard of Dreadful Power, because he's got an MN, right? Um, and was therefore, uh, was thereby rendered foul in wisdom. Um, exactly. He's not yet a doctor of necromancy, so he still does have a ways to go. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, notice how differently this, um, title from master of necromancy, instead of sounding like a degree, uh, master of shadows and of ghosts, his, the implication being not of just like, he doesn't just get information out of him. He just doesn't gain knowledge from the dead, which is what necromancy means. Instead, now he is dominating shadows and ghosts. Um, in other words, we can see in his connection with dead people, uh, not this strange, different thing that doesn't seem to apply anymore uh, in the Lord of the Rings world. Instead, now it becomes a foretaste of his power for dominion, his attempt to dominate the wills of others through the ring of power, right? Um, when, uh, when this whole necromancy thing doesn't pan out for him, right, he, uh, he ups his game uh, by making the ring of power. And we can, like, see that in more of a, more of a uh, 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 continuum there. Evil Doctor Candon, you're right, it's a wholly different kind of evil doctor, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, anyway. Um, okay, so, I, I, as I say, I think that's a fascinating shift, and I think that we can see not only the changing concept of wizard here, but a changing idea, even of magic itself, right? And him wanting to kind of go back over that. All right. Um, more as we get closer to the end. The other alteration, so he was just talking about one alteration in the names of humans. The other alteration made to the Quintus Silmarillion only, and obviously made much earlier than that just given, was an addition to the end of uh, section 137, after the words, He, Felagund, gave to Barihir his ring. But fearing now that all strong places were doomed to fall at last before the might of Morgoth, he sent away his wife Meryl, this is Finrod Felagund we're talking about, 
he sent away his wife Meryl to her own folk in Eglarest, and with her went their son, yet an elven child, and Gilgalad Starlight he was called for the brightness of his eye. Felagan's wife Meryl has not been named before, nor any child of his, and this is the first appearance of Gilgalad from the Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> Note that Gilgalad, like many other characters... Uh, now, Gilgalad, unlike Galadriel, say, is not invented in the Lord of the Rings. He is first invented in the discussion of the Last Alliance that comes from the Numenor, the early versions of the Numenor stories, when he's kind of bringing the Numenor stories to an end. Um, and we got that... Um, uh, we got that... Uh, uh, the ending of the Numenor story is going to be in the Last Alliance, and, and Gilgalad kind of emerges as the the beginning there. But but really, I mean, of course, I see what Christopher's talking about. Like Gilgalad in the Lord of the Rings um, was not in the Silmarillion stuff proper, right before this time. There was no backstory for Gilgalad because it is in the writing of the Lord of the Rings that Gilgalad's story itself becomes developed. Right, um, he ceases to be just a a sort of a, a figure. Originally Elrond, as usual. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, okay. This is, but this is the first appearance. So he's written the Lord of the Rings. Gilgalad is now a thing, right? And so he's, he's gotta, he's gotta explain Gilgalad. And his first impulse is to make him Finrod Felagun's son. Another note on the subject is found in the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript near the opening of the short, i.e. condensed, version of the tale of Baron and Luthien. See the passage in volume 5, penciled rapidly at the foot of a page, but clearly referring to the statement in the text that Felagund gave the crown of Nargothrond to Oradreth before his departure with Baron. But foreseeing evil, he commanded Oradreth to send away his son Gilgalad and wife. This was struck out. And somewhat further on in the tale of Baron and Luthien, in the same version, is a third hasty note, without direction for insertion, but evidently referring to the passage in which Oradreth expelled Caligorn and Curafin from Nargothrond. But the lady... blank. Don't know the lady's name anymore. But the lady... wife of Inglor, forsook the folk of Nargothrond and went with her son Gogalad to the havens of the Phalas. Okay, so... It is clear that at this time, 1957, 1958, whenever he's finishing up the Quinta here, or, you know, by finishing up, I mean about to suddenly stop um, the Quinta, he, uh, his first gesture towards integrating Gilgalad into the legendarium proper, into the stories of the Elder Days, um, is to make Gilgalad Finrod Felagun's son. Now, he already had the version of the story in which Finrod had no children because he didn't get married, because his girlfriend didn't come over with him, right, from Valinor. Um, so this is a departure from that, right? This is a change. But we've seen him in other contexts. Nature of Middle-earth, I think, being willing to change that idea. Remember when he was later than this? going to give uh, Amarie, Finrod's girlfriend, to Turgon instead and say that Turgon came over without his wife. 
um, instead of having her die in the crossing of the Helcaraxa, he was going to leave her back in Valinor. He, so he, we, we, we already have at this same, around the same chronologically at the same time, his seeing Tolkien reallocate Finrod's girlfriend, right? So, um, um, yeah, yeah. Amarie and Elenwe are the two. Yeah, Elenwe being the wife of Turgon in the published Silmaril. Okay. But of course we know this is not the end of the story. Here's the quote-unquote authoritative version. Later evidence makes it certain that the notes on the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript represent a rejected idea for the incorporation of Gilgalad into the traditions of the Elder Days, and the passage just cited from the Grey Annals is to be taken as showing that it had been abandoned. That is, the, um, um, the son of Finrod thing. He's ditched that idea. That Gilgalad was the son of Fingon, that is, the thing that appears in the published Silmarillion, derives from the late note penciled on the manuscript of the Grey Annals, stating that when Fingon became king of the Noldor on the death of Fingolfin, his young son, Findor, Gilgalad, he sent to the Havens. But this, adopted after much hesitation, was not in fact by any means the last of my father's speculations on this question. There's a lesson here to be learned about reading the published Silmarillion, right? Um, and this is, this is among the reasons, this passage illustrates one of the reasons that I would say, and I am prepared to strongly defend the proposition, that there is no canon of Tolkien's writing. If somebody wants to get into an argument with you and say that's not canon, um, I would say to any such person, there is no canon of Tolkien's thought and of Tolkien's story. And this illustrates that fact beautifully. That Gilgalad is the son of Fingon. From that one sentence on page 154 of the Silmarillion, because it is in the published Silmarillion, is accepted by very, very many. That is the canonical explanation. And any other explanation is marginal, right? To, to, to say that there's any other explanation for Gilgalad's backstory is to go against canon, because this is the canonical answer. Here is Christopher confessing that he included that sentence in the published Silmarillion on the authority only of this one penciled notes, which he characterizes as being adopted by his father after much hesitation, and also admits that his father is going to later and much more fully develop another idea. So there are going to be at least three ideas about where Gilgalad came from. That he was the son of Finrod, that he was the son of Fingon, and the future one which I won't spoil, and we'll talk about when we get there, right? Um, what reason is there for picking one of those and saying, this, this is canon, this is authoritative, right? Um, if you say, well, it can't be the Finrod one because he rejected that, you could easily, just as easily say he's going to reject the Fingon one, right? Um Christopher here, remember Christopher when editing the published Silmarillion isn't producing 
canon. He is not trying to convey all of his father's final, fullest ideas. He is only trying to put together the most complete texts that existed. And if something is difficult, an idea that he knows his father had and had shifted to, but can't be conveniently integrated um, into the earlier texts without Christopher himself having to rewrite the entire text, he didn't include it. Not because it's not a legitimate idea, not even because it's not a later idea, which in Tolkien's own mind was designed to supplant the idea that in fact makes it in to the published Silmarillion, but just because that's not what he had, right? Um, exactly. He wanted to share his dad's stories, the stories his father had written, not establish the complete lore. JJ, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, but... Um, yeah. So and agreed, David David and Michael. We will see when we get there that there are other reasons for Christopher not to choose option three, right? But it's not because option three is somehow less canonical or authoritative. Um in some ways, the textual support for Gilgawad son of Fingen, you could easily make the argument that it is the weakest of the three possible versions. Just in this one penciled note, are you going to choose this one penciled note over? I mean, even the Fingen, sorry, even the Finrod one had more uh, text for it, right? Um, and yet, um, uh, I, I, under, I, I totally see why I did. I mean, I'm not dissing on Christopher Tolkien for making the choice or for including this in the published Silmarillion at all. I totally get it. It makes sense. Of the three, it's the one that works best within the editorial context of the published Silmarillion. It's the one that best fits the project that Christopher Tolkien was undertaking when he edited the Silmarillion. But it does not, does not mean that it is canon, that it is the most authoritative version. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, it's a fascinating little illustration. Okay, we're almost out of time, but not quite. Okay, here's one thing. We can at least do this. We won't get to the very end, but, um, uh, but this is fun. I was totally planning to skip over this paragraph and say nothing about it, just other than um, uh, kind of summarizing it a little bit. This is the, near the beginning of the chapter describing the end of the Quintus Silmarillion. But then there was one little bit that I couldn't resist. Of the next chapters in the Quintus Silmarillion, 12 through 15, the tale of Baron and Luthien, oops, there is almost nothing to add to my account in volume five. The a typescript in the LQ1 series was made, but my father only glanced through it cursorily, correcting a few errors in the typing and missing a major one. From this, it was copied in the LQ2 series, which again he looked at in a cursory and uncomparative fashion. Such old names as Inglor and Finrod were not changed to Finrod and Finarfin. The only change that he made to the LQ2 text was at the very beginning, where against Noldor he wrote in the margin Numenor, i.e., which is the longest save one of the songs of the Noldor, changed to of the songs of Numenor concerning the world of old. All right. Um, so 
two things. First, what we what what we're seeing, and Christopher tells us about a few times here, is in these final chapters of the Quintus Silmarillion, the textual evidence suggests that Tolkien is no longer actively revising this as if he's intending to finish the Quintus Silmarillion. There seems to me to be evidence, I think perhaps significant evidence, that Tolkien was abandoning the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, not the Silmarillion project, the Quinta itself. Um, the Quinta as a separate text sort of in parallel to the annals that we've already looked at. Um, and this is one of them. So the LQ1 series and the LQ2 series are the two different typescripts that were made from his manuscripts, right? So this is these are the, the typescripts that are made of the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript. And um, he was doing a bunch of, a lot of revision uh, on, um, on those things. But here, so what Christopher is pointing out is that he does very little revision. So not only does he not continue it on past where he stopped, which was the Turin story, um, in, stopped, I mean, in 1937, when he wrote the original Quintus Silmarillion, or the last version of it. Not only does he not get there. So again, remember the history. He wrote the sketch of the mythology, little outline of the whole thing. Then he expanded that into the Quentin Olderinwa in 1930, where he does go through pretty much the whole thing to the end of the story. Then he starts revising it in 1937 when he thinks he's going to get to publish the Silmarillion because the Hobbit has been accepted and everybody's excited, including his publisher. Right. But he doesn't get to the end of it. Why? Why does he stop at the Turin story? And I think it's not just because he found the Turin story as depressive as I as depressing as I do. Um, no, he seems to have stopped writing the Quintus, doing the Quintus Silmarillion, developing and revising and, and expanding the Quentin Olderinwa into the Quintus Silmarillion in 1937 because he gave up on like he realized the publisher was not, in fact, interested in publishing the Silmarillion, and he needed to get on with writing the Hobbit sequel instead, because that's what the publisher wanted. So, um, so he stops writing the Quintus Silmarillion around then. Um, before he even gets to that same spot here, right, for the last three chapters of the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion in typescript form now, he's, he's stopped, mostly, doing revisions. Um, and I think that that is interesting. I think that that's very, I think that that's a little bit suggestive. Now, he may just have been running out of steam for one reason or another or getting distracted onto something else. But I am not convinced, and it doesn't sound like Christopher is convinced of that either. Um, though I will say, I think that Christopher is more disappointed about that than I am. Um, but anyway, but none of that is really the reason I wanted to re I wanted to do this slide. The reason I wanted to do this slide is the one change that he does make. The one change that he makes, right, that Christopher points out here, the only change he made to the LQ2 text was changing one word, Noldor to Numenor. But I find this a mind-blowing change. Um, 
which is the longest save one. This is in the intro to the Baron and Luthien story, right? The longest save one of the songs of the Noldor concerning the world of old. He changes that to that the song of Baron and Luthien, the Lay of Lathian, is the longest save one of the songs of Numenor concerning the world of old. Do you see what that suggests? The one change that he makes is talking about the frame. The Turin Turinbar is the longer one. Baron and Luthien is second longest. Turin Turinbar is the longest. Um, uh, He's changed the frame. By calling the story of Baron and Luthien a song of Numenor, he's no longer talking about its origins. He's now talking about its provenance. You see? It's not a question of who wrote this song. It's a question of how did this song come to us? How did this song survive into the Third Age and then beyond? We know how it survived beyond. Bilbo's translations from the Elvish. But how did it survive into the Third Age? How did it get to somewhere where Bilbo could translate it? From Numenor. Right? Um, and that is very interesting to me. It's also interesting to me, not only because it deals with the frame of the story, which I'm fascinated by, but also because it differs from the other frame. It seems to me that the the longest save one of the songs of Numenor frame, or you know the 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 textual history implicit in the in the phrase longest save one of the songs of Numenor, and the textual history implicit in the phrase quoth Alfwina, are contradictory. Did these stories come into the modern world through Alfwina or through Bilbo? Are these stories that were handed down from a human traveler who found himself in Elvenholm, learned the stories, did the Book of Lost Tales thing, and brought it back? That's option one. Or were these stories passed down through Numenor, where they survived, through which they survived, into Middle-earth in the Third Age, and were collected by people like Gondorian scholars and P.S. Elrond, um, and then later translated by Bilbo, included in the translations from the Elvish, bound with the Red Book uh, in its four volumes, and thereby survived. And we have the text now. Um, that, I think, is... Those seem to be two different textual stories. The The latter one the story that goes through Numenor and then Bilbo is the post-Lord of the Rings story. That's the story that gets developed during the Lord of the Rings in two senses, right? Developed both in the sense that the idea of Bilbo as chronicler and the concept of the translations from the Elvish comes during the writing of the Lord of the Rings, and but so does the development of the Numenor story. Right. And the ascension into prominence of the Numenor story when the Numenor story and the desire to do the Atlantis myth uh, kind of overwhelmed him like a great wave in the middle of right or two thirds of the way through writing the Lord of the Rings, such that he sets the Lord of the Rings aside and writes the Notion Club papers and invents Adunayek. Right. Uh, during the writing of the Lord of the Rings. Um, after all of that happens. 
um, after all that happens, we get um, uh, we get references like this, right? Whereas the older version of the textual story is the Alfwina story, the Book of Lost. Now that's the one that goes back to the beginning. That uh, somehow the stories have survived into the modern age through the Middle Ages, right? Through Alfwina and those who read his books. And I don't think we've seen anywhere, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we've seen anywhere in the history of Middle-earth so far any place where Tolkien has harmonized those two textual stories. The stories of the um, through Bilbo by way of Numenor textual story and the through Alfwina by way of Tolaresia version of the story. Um, anyway. Um, so there it is. Very interesting. Um, no. I know I'm not going to do the next one. We'll get to the end next time. And then we have to talk about. We still didn't get to my confessional moment. The place where I discovered that I've been saying the wrong thing for years. Um, uh, but I promise I'm not concealing it. We'll, we'll do that next time. Um, and it relates to... I'll, I'll tell you in advance what the thing is. Um, when we talked about The Lost Road... Um, which you're barely going to be able to see because it's got a green cover. Um, when we talked about The Lost Road uh, and we discussed the Dagor Dagoroth, that little epilogue that he writes, the little ending that he writes to the Quintus Silmarillion, which contains the story of Turin killing Morgoth in the last battle, and then everything sad coming untrue by the, you know, the trees coming back to life and, and everything being happy. Um... Uh, I've been saying that I think that was the final version of that story and that I didn't remember any evidence um, for Tolkien returning to that story afterwards. But he did, clearly, in 1957-58. Um, now, it comes with a little bit of an asterisk from Christopher. That Christopher's not sure that he's actually like doubling down on that story but there's some evidence that he's considering it. So we'll look at that next time. Um, uh, the very short potential revisions of the story of the Dagor Dagoroth from 1957-58, um, that's what we're going to come back to um, next time <laughs> and talk about that. Um I think I side with Christopher on this one, but um, but nevertheless, it was very... I totally forgot that it existed, because again, it's one of those things buried in the middle of notes in a chapter in the middle of this book, and I forgot about it. Uh, but anyway, we'll look at that next time, and then we'll start The Wanderings of Hurin. And once again, I don't know where to tell you to stop reading, because um, The Wanderings of Hurin... I don't even remember what paragraph I told you to read to last time with the hope that maybe we'd get somewhere. Uh, 
but um, let's 271 so my question to myself really is do I think we're likely to get past very far past that next time Um, but hey, let's, um, let's look on the bright side. Let's, um, okay. Read up to page 282. Um, ending... At the paragraph break, right before the next day, long before the time set at mid-morn, the moot, the moot began to assemble. If the moot has assembled, you've gone too far. Um, let's avoid the assembling of the moot until next time. Because next week is moot week, when I'm going to Maple Moot, and so that's when we can go past the moot assembling. Okay. Awesome. Thanks very much. This was really great. Lots of stuff I think we did uh, here. Um, okay, well, not many things, but lots of interesting stuff. Um, thanks, everybody, uh, for joining me. And I will, <laughs> Lord willing, I will see you guys next week. Sorry, I'm laughing because um, Wednesdays have been the day in which, like, something weird happens at home. Um, the week before last, I had to cancel class because my wife was in a very minor car accident. Everybody's fine, but she got rear-ended. And, um, you know, I spent the whole day talking to insurance companies and mechanics and stuff. Uh, so my whole day got, like, completely thrown uh, a curveball by a, a, a car accident. And then today, everything was fine until my wife suddenly came down with a fever. So I get, anyway, like, once again. So we'll see what happens next Wednesday. Who knows? Um, but... Um, <laughs> but in any case, assuming nothing strange happens next Wednesday, I will see you guys next Wednesday, where we will re we will look at the epilogue of the Quintus Silmarillion, uh, and then begin the wanderings of Hurin. So, thanks very much, everybody. Good night. Bye now.